Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, episode number 107. With Jessica Minahan, the author of The Behavior Code, a practical guide to understanding and teaching the most challenging students. In this much needed book, based on a collaboration dating back nearly a decade, the authors Jessica Minahan, a behavioral analyst, and Nancy Rappaport, a child psychiatrist, reveal their systematic approach for deciphering causes and patterns of difficult behaviors and how to match them with proven strategies for getting students back on track to learn. My name is Andrea Samadhi, and if you're new here, I'm a former educator who created this podcast to bring the most current neuroscience research, along with high-performing experts who've risen to the top of their field, with specific strategies or ideas that you can implement immediately, whether you're an educator or in the corporate space, to take your results to the next level. If you've ever heard my story of where my career began, you would know why I was so interested to speak with Jessica about the strategies in the behavior code. My first job out of the University of Toronto's Faculty of Education was a behavioral class. I felt overwhelmed and frustrated by the lack of resources to manage and teach my students. And this was one of the catalysts that drew me towards social and emotional learning back in the late 90s. If only I had read this book back then, I wouldn't have struggled so much. So let me tell you more about Jessica. She's a licensed and board certified behavior analyst, author, special educator, and consultant to schools internationally. Since 2000, she's worked with students who struggle with mental health issues and challenging behavior in public school systems. She specializes in training staff and creating behavior intervention plans for students who demonstrate explosive and unsafe behavior. She also works with students who have emotional and behavioral disabilities, anxiety disorders, or high-functioning autism. Her particular interest is to serve these students by combining behavioral interventions with a comprehensive knowledge of best practices for those with complex mental health profiles and learning needs. She's a blogger on the Huffington Post. She's the author of the Behavior Code that also has a companion guide. So there's strategies, tools, and interventions for supporting students with anxiety-related or oppositional behaviors. She holds a Bachelor in Science in Intensive Special Education from Boston University and a dual master's degree in special education in elementary ed from Wheelock College. She has a certificate of graduate study in teaching children with autism from the University of Albany and received her BCBA training from Northeastern University in Boston. She is sought after internationally to speak on subjects ranging from effective interventions for students with anxiety to supporting hard to reach students in full inclusion public school settings. So how did I come across Jessica's work? Well, a couple of Saturday mornings ago, I was at my desk and I was getting caught up from the week and an email came in from Greg Wolcott, who I mention often on the podcast. He's an assistant superintendent from Chicago, who's not only been a guest a couple of times on the podcast, but he's a huge supporter. So he brainstorms ideas, topics, and guests often with me. And this time he sent me Jessica's name and said, you've really got to take a look at her. I'm on a webinar with her right now, and you've got to take a look at her for your podcast with this book, The Behavior Code. 
And I knew I needed to speak with her the minute I saw the title of her book. So if you're a current teacher, former teacher, or thinking about being a teacher, I'm sure that you'd want to know what is the behavior code. As a parent, I'm still trying to figure this out, and my girls aren't even teenagers yet. So I emailed Jessica that second, and I asked if she would come on the podcast, and within hours, we had the interview set up. So let's hear what Jessica has to say about the behavior code. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for taking the time out of a busy schedule where I know you've been working hard presenting on the weekends to speak with me today about your book, The Behavior Code. Before we get to the questions, Jessica, I just wanted to read one of the reviews that you have in the beginning of your book, if that's okay with you, just to kind of give the listeners a feel for what to expect from today's podcast with you. Great. Thank you. So we have not met until just now. So, um, you know, we had talked on email, so you wouldn't know my backstory but um, when I read the review in the first couple of pages of your book, it could have been written by me. So when, when I read this review, I just want to read it out loud. The behavior code needs to be read by all teachers, counselors, administrators, and parents. From cover to cover, I felt the authors were speaking to me, an elementary teacher. Now, I was a middle school teacher, so it's not far off. And a mom. I wasn't a mom back then, but I am now. And I felt like they knew me, knew those students who kept me awake at night. And I still wake up at night and wonder what happened to those students I taught over 20 years ago. Teachers, this book was written by authors who know what our jobs are like. And that was by Lorna, a special needs book review. So Jessica, I've heard you say when you show up to a school to help teachers, it's usually after an incident has happened and the teachers and the men are looking for an immediate solution and no one says, hey, Jessica, how was your weekend? They just grab you and like, what do we do? Is this what you hear most often these days? Yeah, well, teachers, principals, special ed directors, superintendents who are emailing me are pretty panicked. There's a lot of exclamation points in the subject lines. You know, what do I do? Please come tomorrow. Where are you? And um, the, you know, and I, and I feel badly because, um, you know, the, it, it's sort of different now how the um, behavior is. A lot of, you know, it, last year when kids were in person more, um, some, you know, we had a lot of aggressive behaviors and different things. And now it's real, I'm really getting a lot of emails right now about student disengagement and, um, a lot of sort of, you know, finding a poem written by a kid and the teacher panicking and there's this just internal um, distress that kids are, are trying to express and, um, you know, so in some ways it's less urgent than big aggressive behaviors that I often get called in for, but um, equally if not more concerning. Absolutely. And as a former educator, I feel it. And as a mom, I feel it with my two girls. So um, I just want to thank you so much for being here to answer some questions, to dive a little bit deeper into this book that you've written that to me back in the late 90s when I was a classroom teacher, there were no strategies for me out of teacher training class. You know, they were 
um, pretty much threw me my first teaching position out of the faculty of ed in Toronto was a behavioral class. And so it was me and these students with zero strategies. And, you know, it's, it, I mentioned in the backstory that it wasn't until recently, so more than 20 years later that I started to see um, some books that have been written on this topic. Before I found you, I found Dr. Lori Desitel and her connections over compliance that made me see that, hey, maybe it was how I was reacting in the classroom that was actually causing the students to uh, misbehave because my cortisol levels impact their cortisol levels. Right. So why do you think there's this gap in our teacher training programs? And I studied in Toronto and it's the same in the US, but what what's happening that's creating teachers who are undertrained and overwhelmed that I've heard you say? Well, there's really two things happening. One is teacher prep programs. Um, typically in the U.S. require zero or one courses in behavior management. And as you probably remember, those are usually called classroom management. So it's a little more general than what we're talking about today. Um, and then there's usually zero or one courses mandated in mental health. A lot of times if they do have a course, it's a survey course, like intro to psychology or something like that. And the problem with that is the rates of kids with mental health issues are going up exponentially. So for we don't have national rates yet for since the pandemic, but before March in the U.S., the national rates for kids with um, anxiety is 31.9 percent, so uh, for lifetime prevalence. So that means one in three um, kids experience clinically significant anxiety before age 18. So we can presume since the pandemic, those rates have gone up. Um, teacher training has not adjusted, of course, this year, but in general to this trend where teachers can be looking out at a classroom with a third struggling with anxiety, 7 to 10 percent having ADHD, 2.5 to 10 percent to having depression, um, you know, 1 in 55 have autism. And so we're kind of training them for a classroom that doesn't exist, right? Almost 50% of their class can be struggling with different social emotional disabilities that they have very little training on. And so that's why um, you do this podcast. And that's why I, um, you know, was, you know, have spent every day in schools and um, across the world and, uh, and, you know, decided to write the books um, so that we could translate the research because a lot of the neuropsych and mental health research is not, is not really geared for a classroom teacher with very little experience in that area. And so what I've tried to do is take the research and translate it into doable practical strategies because I have been a teacher myself and I was in two big urban public school districts in Massachusetts for 13 years in classrooms with teachers trying to help them. And so um, the strategies I've really put in the books and, and that I have learned and trained since um, are, are doable, which is really a key point because we don't want to overwhelm the teacher while we're trying to help the student. So it needs to be practical. Well, it makes so much sense, Jessica. When I was teaching, I think the only resource that I ever saw in my year that it was me, the students, and I always say it, it, I had this buzzer on the wall that I could buzz for help if like, it was really bad. And someone would come from down the hallway 
and, and trying to offer me help. But I just wish I knew some of these strategies that, that you talk about. Um, and I remember thinking in my head, you know, what's wrong with these kids? And, and that just shows me that I was missing some very valuable and important training. What should all teachers know about behavior? And can you explain how we can turn around even the most challenging student behavior? Like, Where would we start? You were giving me a flashback when you were describing your classroom because my first classroom was um, a classroom in they called the kids violent behaviorally disordered, which is not even really a label. But anyway, and I had a red button on my wall, too, oh, that I tried very hard not to push. And uh, oh. I that was just giving me a little flashback. I, I started the same way. Um, then, yes, I think there's um, a lot of things that teachers could know about behavior. One thing is that students would behave if they could. Um, so when a student's misbeha misbehaving, it's almost always due to an underdeveloped social skill or an underdeveloped emotional skill. And we've learned that from Ross Green and Stuart Avalon and several Harvard researchers. Um, we make a lot of judgments on their chronological age, like he should be able to wait for 10 minutes, he's in sixth grade. That's an assumption of his self-regulation skill of waiting based on his chronological age. And the problem is the chronological age doesn't indicate to us at all where someone's social or emotional skills are. The only thing that will indicate that is the behavior. So when a kid's misbehaving, I just get really curious, like, huh, I wonder what skills are underdeveloped there. And when we're, since we're kind of talking about anxiety uh, that's on the forefront of our mind today, um, there are five uh, neurobiological skills that are impacted when you're anxious. So when anxiety goes up, five particular skills go down. One is self-regulation. Uh, the other is executive functioning, which has a lot to do with initiating and persisting with tasks, which is why we see a lot of disengagement with anxious kids. Flexible thinking, that's where you can get in a power struggle. I don't know if you've ever said to a five-year-old, put on your winter coat, and they say no, and you could be there for an hour, right? Because they get less flexible the, the more stressed and agitated they are. Accurate thinking is a tough one. And when anyone is anxious, we think on the downside, we think negatively. And so, for example, if you were going to an important meeting and you hit a traffic jam um, and you look at the clock and you're now six minutes late, you're, you're usually not thinking happy, comforting thoughts to yourself. You're probably thinking, you know, uh, more stressful thoughts, which actually increases the anxiety. And so um, inaccurate thinking is a, a huge culprit to why kids behave in certain ways. And unfortunately, that's where teachers have the least amount of training. Um, so I do try to show a lot of strategies there. Um, another skill is social skills, the last one. Um, usually the specific social skill impacted when you're anxious um, is perspective taking understanding someone else's thoughts and feelings. So for example, if you're walking down the hallway, if you get out of your car at work, I hope I don't jinx you, and you spill coffee on your shirt, um, and you're walking down the hallway uh, with your big coffee stain, anyone glancing in your direction because you're self-conscious, you kind of presume they're noticing your coffee stain, and anyone kind of glancing in your direction, you kind of presume they're thinking something negative. 
just remember the coffee stain moment where you're trying to understand the perspective of someone with anxiety, that there's a distortion in perception where everything, things are about me and people have negative intent. So if I walk into a classroom, two kids are laughing, I may interpret that, that they're laughing at me. And that, of course, can lead to more anxiety and more issues. So um, that, that's really important to know that there are skills that are contributing to the behavior issue. And this is why incentives do not really work. So when I am called in, usually there's some sort of incentive plan going on. You know, get your work done and you get five extra points or get all your homework done this week. And, you know, parents try a pizza party or something. And the problem, the reason that's not solving a lot of problems is because incentives do not teach skills. All an incentive will do is increase your motivation. So if you said to me, Jess, can you speak in French for the rest of this workshop for our, our um, listeners who, who speak French, um, I'll give you, you know, <clears throat> um, uh, you know, $500. I would be motivated by the $500, but I cannot speak French. So the incentive won't matter. You can make it a million dollars and French won't just start coming out of my mouth. So the incentives don't really help um, teach skills. And when kids anxious and these skills drop, incentives aren't going to help you in that moment because you're not addressing the skills. Got it. Well, how would we actually look for the underlying cause behind a behavior? Like th this to me was eye-opening because I used to just see my kids you know, when I was trying to teach and I had turned my back, there was things flying around the classroom. I never thought, like, why are they doing that? I never thought of looking for a cause. But what are some basic things that you could think about in, in your head if you're a beginning teacher and there's behavioral issues happening? Where could we even begin with finding the cause? Yeah, well, the, the first thing is uh, knowing there is a cause is the first step and, and not making assumptions about behavior. So I would hesitate to just sort of, um, you know, say, oh, he's just being noncompliant or he's just doing that for attention or he's trying to get out of something because we didn't do an analysis. And what I have found is it's much more complicated why kids are behaving certain ways. And so our initial assumption um, can often be unhelpful. So the first thing I would do is uh, I'm a behavior analyst. And so I like to sort of look for patterns because um, a lot of behavior, uh, behavior commonly has patterns. One really nice way to do that is through ABC um, data, which um, is just three columns, ABC. And A stands for antecedent, which just means what happened right before. Then you describe the behavior. And then consequence, we use that word wrong as behavior analysts. We just mean response, like how do kids respond, how do teachers respond. But um, the antecedent is the most important to me, especially when we're talking about kids with anxiety, because um, when you analyze what is occurring right before a behavior, you, patterns will start to emerge. And we can, um, when we put interventions into those antecedents, we can bypass the behavior, of course. Um, the nice way and and then the second thing you want to do is um look at an analysis of the underdeveloped skills contributing to the behavior so first the antecedents and then which underdeveloped skills and those two pieces of information will help us come up with um some solutions to make it easier i do sort of you know uh, extend my 18 years of work 
in um, sort of summarize some of the patterns that I see in terms of antecedents, there's six common ones. One is unstructured times, which is um, so much less now because our, if we are in person, there's so fewer kids and they can't go to recess really in cafeterias and stuff like that where a lot of um, kids have trouble, especially with self-regulation issues. Transitions are a huge culprit of where um, kids can be non-compliant, not follow directions. And there's, um, you know, that's totally in the wheelhouse of a teacher to make a few changes so we can prevent that. Writing demands, a lot of kids, um, you know, avoid writing more than other things. And um, there's reasons for that. A lot of it is due to the inaccurate thinking. So for example, if the kid's flooded with negative thoughts and they're staring at a piece of paper, and, and graphic organizer is not going to help that kid start. It's a different toolbox. And so that's why we want to look at the underdeveloped skills too. Social demands, independent work is very hard for kids. That's what, you know, I think virtual teaching has exposed is how much help kids really do get, even though we call it independent work. The teacher goes over, nudges them along, keeps them going, gets them started. Um, so independent work would be the fifth one. And then novelty or unexpected change does not go well, particularly for kids with anxiety or flexible thinking issues. So, um, you know, we have our um, list of uh, underdeveloped skills and we have our list of common antecedents and sort of looking at that, those two pieces of information is, the, is a really fabulous way to start um, thinking about interventions. And as you're talking, I'm just thinking about how much work or training is so important to the educator and why I was kind of set up to fail because I didn't have this way of thinking. I just had my students sitting there and I was like, why aren't they doing the worksheets? And you just listed the most common ones. And I'm sure every one of my students had one of those common um, reasons for not not doing their work right you know so, so just thinking about how important these skills are just to to know that that uh from my point of view as a teacher what would what could have been different if i had done things a little differently more success for sure right and how do you tie in social and emotional skills into behavioral control so in chapter one of your book you actually mentioned an incident with a student named Alyssa and she blows up at another student. And then you had a chart showing the SEL skills that were missing that need to be taught. How can teachers assess the strategies you outline in a situation like this in real time? Like, let's say, you know, I'm in the cafeteria, something happens. And, you know, the, the idea is that we don't want to have more disruption. But what could we do to keep the situation calm and then figure out what skills we need to teach those students and then get those skills in place. There's a lot to unpack in an explosive situation in the cafeteria, right? Right. Yeah, I think the best thing a teacher can do is to be as prepared as possible, of course. And so I think you want to make, um, if they could pull from a toolkit in that moment, that would be the best possible way. So for each underdeveloped skill, like self-regulation, um, there, you know, there are a couple strategies, really go-to strategies that teachers can learn or something like inaccurate thinking. Actually, those are pretty tied. So for a lot of kids who, um, you know, get upset, 
we try different things like pull them aside and keep talking about it or we um give them directions and a lot of kids when they're that escalated can't really think rationally so you you know if we're saying oh this is the reason this is happening but give them a lot of sentences that's not particularly useful for example when um a lot of dysregulation, oppositional defiant kind of moments are rooted in anxiety. And so what we often do is give kids breaks too. We'll say, uh, go for a walk. That's a common thing. If there was a cafeteria incident, I would see the teacher say, go for a walk, like, you know, take space from this. Um, and there are a couple common teacher practices that might be unhelpful. This is one of them, because when you have a kid take a walk, they can be ruminating about what they're angry about that whole time. And a lot of times when I take the data, they come back not more regulated. And um, that doesn't, you know, and it, it might persist if the kid sees him later in that day and stuff like that. And so just like we, when we can't sleep at night, um, we either read a book or watch TV to help us go back to sleep. Because obviously if we stay on the thought or thoughts, we will stay awake. We, we're not we have to get off the thought, distract ourselves to calm down, to go back to sleep. So um, it's that's a, not a, 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 it's sort of counterintuitive in a lot of uh, when kids are escalated, but what um, you really don't want them per to persist on that thought or what they're angry about because they will stay dysregulated. So um, cognitive distractions or thought breaks are much more evidence-based for kids who, who are dysregulated and uh you know so for example um you know saying to a kid go get a drink of water um they can be standing out there kind of still ruminating about what's bothering them or um <clears throat> you know have uh you know go sit in the calming corner a lot of elementary schools have calming corners calming chairs which is um you know great to set up but one misstep there is we say go back there and calm down and the kids ruminating and thinking about what they're upset about and so in my data they don't actually come back calmer um that's true of kids with more internalized behavior i had a girl who was picking her skin so badly she was you know bleeding in her in her classes and they gave her a drawing notebook but we noticed it she was still picking and she still couldn't get back to work after, which is really the point of her break is for the kid to be more regulated after. So a kid who's really upset in the cafeteria or a kid who's picking their skin, you want them calmer as quick as possible. And so, you know, drawing, with, she, was, she was still ruminating while she was drawing when I interviewed her. So what we did for her and the way I describe it to kids is your brain is like a remote control. You're stuck on this channel. You need to change the channel to calm down. Um, you can't stay on that channel and calm down. And so we gave her, for example, three pieces of Sudoku, you know, that math game with the little boxes mm -hmm. instead of drawing. And she, you know, almost no picking. She could get back to work within 15 to 20 seconds over the next two weeks. We took data um, much better for a kid. I wouldn't want them, an angry kid who you say, okay, go for a walk in the cafeteria, have them pacing around the hallway because it also could cause another incident in the hallway to have an escalated person. So, um, you know, distracting them and saying, uh, you know, uh, you need to change a channel. I'm going to talk to you about this in about five minutes. That's a much better response than trying to talk to the kid. You're just, it's almost like throwing kindling on a fire as you keep talking to a kid who's really escalated. Um, so I think it's not, 
it sounds sort of counterintuitive that you would want to distract the thought of an escalated person, but actually, if they stop thinking about what's angering them, um, you see their whole body come, and then what happens is those the anxiety goes down, the skills come back up, and now you can have a more rational conversation with the kid. So. Um, I think kind of knowing a few go-tos um, like that like that can be very useful for teachers to make sure they're not misstepping. Do you ever use that strategy of asking the students to name what's bothering them, like name it to tame it idea? Do you think that that would help this situation if a student is ruminating to tell you about it? Would that help? It depends. Um, on the student and some students are not that metacognitive. And when you're very anxious, uh, kids with trauma histories, right? Uh, so trauma triggered or very anxious, um, you know, the, the top-down processing in your brain, the rational thought and the executive functioning is, is uh, impaired. And the limbic area, the emotional center of your brain is sort of uh, the one doing all the work. So it's, it's, it depends on how escalated the kid is. It depends on where their metacognitive skills are anyway. You know, I've met <clears throat> five-year-olds that are more metacognitive than some teenagers who, you know, grunt, I don't know. I don't know. I just get mad. You know, they can't really figure it out. So it's kind of a hard question. Even for adults to say, why do you think you acted that way is a very, that's a hard question to answer. And that's why people go to therapy for years, you know. <laughs> um, so I, I, uh, I think that's a better question maybe when everyone's calm and I do show kids they have patterns of behavior. Um, I do talk about, you know, uh, like a teenage girl who goes out of class a lot to check in with a counselor. Um, you know, I just had, was consulting on a case. And so what we did is we showed her there's really two reasons you always come out. It's academic performance anxiety or social conflict. But she doesn't know that. Every time she comes out, she's just talking about the details of the one situation. And the teacher said this and it made her feel this and blah, blah, blah. But, and that could go on. And then she comes back the next. So what we did is we said, you have this pattern of behavior. And so when she's not upset, we would say, you know, when you come into the office, it's either this or this. And we gave her five or six strategies for each situation. So we would say, so then when she's upset and she comes in, we could say, um, I'm going to interrupt you there. I'm so sorry you're upset. You always want to validate the feeling. I'm sorry you're upset. I'm going to interrupt you there. Do you think this is social conflict or academic performance anxiety? Oh, I think it's academic. Okay, what are your strategies, right? So it's really helpful. I think that conversation is helpful, but you need to do a little prep first and, you know, the kid has to really understand their behavior at a certain level to, to do that. This is really good. I would have had my my 30 students off to be brain scientists if I, <laughs> if I had known this back then. But um, what about where would an adult begin for this? Like a lot of people are listening to this podcast. So it kind of shocked me when I launched it. I launched it about a year and eight months ago. And we're now into 136 countries. We're almost at 50,000 downloads. And the numbers are just going up and up. So I know that people are looking for ways to learn this. But where would a teacher, uh, parents begin to learn these strategies for themselves first? Yeah. Oh, for, them, for themselves or for their toolkit? 
Yeah, for themselves, because you know, when you're telling a student something, and if you're not doing it yourself, it, they just don't have the belief in you. You have to have these skills yourself first to have anyone trust or believe in you, right? Well, one thing for a really stressed teacher is you don't want to overwhelm them more. That's the, that's the main thing. And so I tell teachers, do not be afraid to ask for help. I think sometimes we're trying to figure it out for way too long. A lot of times I've been, I was called in and I wish I was called in a month prior to when they called me, right? And there is a little, so I would love to normalize that it's, that, you know, we're all in this together and to not be afraid to ask for help in a really kind of heated moment. It's really helpful to switch off with another adult um, and just give yourself space um, to get your cortisol down and your your uh, limbic area a little calmer and your frontal lobe kicking in a little more. All those things happening, um, space and time really do help that. Um, I think there are, you know, again, some really, it's not, what I try to do in my trainings is it's not as uh, overwhelming as you think. Behavior has these patterns and they're really common things. Like for example, um, teachers can have a few go-to ways of giving a direction that will lead to cooperative response. There's a lot of ways of giving a direction that will lead to an escalated person or, you know, a kid who gets real defensive. Um, for example, an authoritative tone of voice, um, <clears throat> which was more common in the day than it is now, uh, in a public direction, like take your hood off in front of a whole bunch of kids that's the least likely to go well. And then you're going to get in a situation where now you're, you have two stressed people, the teacher and the kid, and there's a, you know, sort of a power struggle. So for example, um, I like sort of cheat sheets. That's what I call them because I think that's one of the best things for teachers. Like one is, um, you know, private um, uh, and nonverbal directions go better. So for example, if you have a kid who's humming happy birthday song really loudly while you're trying to teach, that would be annoying. I wouldn't go walk over to that kid, give him eye contact and publicly say to stop humming, right? That's, I see a lot of teachers do that. I wouldn't recommend that. Um, in fact, when you walk straight towards a kid who's anxious, you actually often increase the anxiety. If you're standing over a kid, even a tall high school kid sitting, there's, you're activating cer certain alerting parts of the brain, like this is a vulnerable spot. So it's not, that's not a common thing to do. So what I would do is not do any of those things. I'd stay way over in the front of the, you know, bulletin board and just write on a sticky note, please stop humming, put it on their desk without commenting or even really looking at them. And then you're going to think I'm joking, but I'm dead serious, like run six to eight feet away, be really busy talking to someone else. Um, <clears throat> because I love the Spanish proverb, if one will not, two cannot argue, right? So if a teacher mm -hmm. says to me, he argues with me all the time, he negotiates with me all the time, which is so stressful to both parties you're 50% of that volley. And so there's lots of ways you can give direction that you'll just avoid that. For example, another one would be to give the reason before the direction. So what typically adults, if there's a kid spills pencils on the floor, we would say, can you pick those up? And then we give the reason. I don't want to fall. Mm -hmm. But the kid has now been called out, right? There's sometimes a reaction to that if there's any trauma history or or some of that distortion that happens with anxiety that we talked about. So you've had kids who 
like feel like you yelled at them or feel like, you know, all this stuff happened. So instead you just flip it and give the reason first. So you're still, their rational brain is still with you and you can say, uh, oh, I hope I don't fall in these because I have such a bad knee. I really don't want to hurt my knee. Could you pick these up? It'll just go so much easier. And then you bypass the the whole neurobiological cascading problems that could have occurred if you did it otherwise. Choices is another thing. If, instead of saying sit down, mm-hmm. you could say, do you want to sit here or here? Instead of line up, do you want to line up in the front of the line or the back of the line? When you give a little choice, it gives the kid a little control, which, you know, control makes kids feel more comfortable, reduces anxiety. So there's what I try to do in my trainings is I give cheat sheets like that because when you're stressed, um, you might give a, a direction like sit down, pick that up, and those are are going to add to the whole problem. And so there are some go tos that you can sort of just get used to and sort of make a habit of mind that will prevent so many issues in the classroom and and keep everyone calmer, especially the teacher. Oh, I love these. These are so helpful, Jessica. So I know that you go into depth on your FAIR intervention plan that's in chapter two of your book. And I've heard you go into depth on a podcast and I put the link in the show notes so you don't have to go all in depth again about your plan. But could you give like an overview of how we would use this FAIR plan in practice with an anxiety-related behavior, something that we're all experiencing, the the steps? Sure. So the first step, again, is um, to look at those, that antecedent, right, pattern, and those underdeveloped skills. And so we really want to know those up front. So what a teacher would do is if you had a little ABC chart, which, by the way, you can download from the internet, don't make one for yourself, just Google ABC data chart, 1 million will come up for you. If you write five incidents on that piece of paper, um, <clears throat> you know, patterns will come up to you. So that's what I would say. That's the F part of FAIR. F stands for functions. You want to know, like, what are the patterns? What is, you know, triggering is a word. A lot of counselors use this behavior. Um, the A part of FAIR is the accommodations. So for all the underdeveloped skills, we want to make sure we're putting accommodations in place. Like for example, for an inflexible kid, the, the uh, accommodation I just shared with how you can give a direction. If you do, if you give directions in that way, give the reason first, um, do them privately with a sticky note. That's a good accommodation for an inflexible kid. So you're going to, by putting that in place, you're going to bypass these, you know, big problems. So in a, you want to look at, what is the underdeveloped skill and make sure you have some accommodations in the classroom. And then we also want to teach the skill to the kid. Um, And then I stands for interaction strategies. And um, I I know since you have the same, started out the same way I did, um, you know that there's kids with mental health issues, their success, social, emotional behavior issues, their success is very person dependent in a building. You know, for example, the third grade teacher, you know, is so child whispery, the kid does great that year. And then the next year, it's a substitute teacher who's kind of got an inflexible personality and the kid and the teacher are kind of butting heads. And um, we that can even have high stakes. We might even be saying, like, does he need a, you know, outside placement? But there are certain things that the child whispery teacher is doing 
like you know in the u.s we have you know private like a lot of places we have private schools just for kids with social emotional issues and um and then we have the public schools and sometimes there's a decision should this child stay in public school or should they go to a special classroom or a special school and when you really look at one of the biggest variables why kids do well in some of the social emotional schools and classrooms is the teachers in those programs have these relational skills mm -hmm. that are very trauma-informed. And so for me, um, when I was a consultant and I didn't add that information, um, I was at a loss. Like I would come in and show a teacher what to do and I'd leave and then the teacher would say, it didn't work when I did it. And what I forgot to add was how to make the kid feel comfortable with you, how to, how to let the kid feel safe. Mm -hmm. So things like, um, so interaction strategies, every behavior plan I write, there's a section called interaction strategies where I actually write out how to, how to interact. So why let the teacher figure it out? Um, and, and that's something we don't give advice to. Like when he's doing well in English class, but not in math class, the English teacher doesn't come over and say, um, you know, I never give a public direction because he feels uncomfortable or um, something like public praise, right? That's the number one way we give praise as adults. Most uncomfortable way to receive praise, though. So I don't know if you know kids, when you praise them, they look uncomfortable, they cover their paper, they say the opposite, they even argue with you. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the you know, actually, it's safer to assume they don't like it than they like it because there's more kids that don't. And so when you see discomfort with praise, the public part is probably the problem. And I just say to teachers, pull them aside and say, when I'm proud of you, how should I let you know? Should I do a thumbs up? Should I give you a sticky note? Can you check at my desk before you leave the class? And then that would go into the interaction strategies document. Some Sometimes you just have that. Um, <clears throat> so when I'm consulting to teachers, I will hand them a piece of paper that says things like avoid public praise. He prefers a thumbs up. Um, two for 10, two minutes a day for 10 days. Talk to him about nothing school related. So you get to know his interests. Um, by the way, greet him at the door and ask him one of his interests within the first two minutes you see him. So, you know, some teachers know to say, hey, how you doing? Did you see the game last night? Other teachers might say, where's your homework or you're late, right? And that's, you know, going to be really different. And so you sort of, um, I quantify because to me, these are accommodations. If they're not in place, kids can't access curriculum because when you're anxious, you can't. And when you don't feel safe, you can't learn. So putting these in place really concretely is useful for all staff members. And I wouldn't assume, you know, saying build a relationship is adequate. Um, two for 10 is much more concrete. Um, greet them at the door. Instead of standing over them when you're helping them with their work, get down to their eye level and to the side of their desk. You, you know, that's more trauma-informed than being in front of them. Those kind of things I actually write out for teachers so I don't have to just expect that they'll figure it out. Um, so that's the I part. And then R is responses. So when we teach skills and strategies to kiddos, um, in the R is I sort of talk about how the best way to respond, right? So like the cafeteria incident, I might say you need to distract him, tell him to change his channel and, you know, <clears throat> um, or ask him two, two sports trivia questions real quick, get his brain distracted, calm him down, then maybe talk to him. And I write all that out in responses. I also love if, if people do like incentive charts, and I know that's very popular, sticker charts and with older kids, you know, behavior contracts and stuff. 
Um, if you're going to reinforce a kid like that, use a sticker or give points, I would do it on did you use a strategy, not did you complete your work, but did you use a strategy? And so that would be outlined in the R2, like what um, strategies that you want to be reinforcing when you see. So your response to seeing any strategy would be reinforcement so that we see kids with more skills, less behavior, or more skills, less behavior as the months go on throughout the year. Got it. And if, if you've got a class with students that you know have anxiety-related behavior, um, to think about how my tone of voice would be with them, mm -hmm. how, uh, how I'm speaking, like bend down so I'm speaking more in their eyes. I'm just kind of reviewing some strategies that I could think of because I I have a, a child that gets pretty anxious and, and I know that I'm probably doing everything wrong. Like, is your homework done? And, you know, her eyes bulge out. So I'm just thinking about, you know, even as a parent, how can yeah. I be talking to my course? Well, and that it's really helpful to share and write out. I mean, so when I'm consulting to a teacher, you know, I had this teacher recently taught math and was getting into you know, kids were, were leaving the class and, and not, you know, really disengaged, pretending they're asleep, like having a lot of trouble. And so I didn't want to just say something generic, like build a relationship, because I, I think more specific would be better for certain people. And in general, why reinvent the wheel if you have the same kid, that, you know, like PE teachers and art teachers and music teachers, no kids for years or coaches, right? No kids at this different level. And it's really helpful. Like I like to make interaction strategies of Google Doc, um, password protected. So if you, you can only read it if you work with the kid um, and, and share it with everyone. You know, cafeteria staff can get, can say something that will, you know, set off a kid. Um, you know, it's helpful to know this child, like substitute teachers. It'd be nice for the first page of the substitute teacher plan to include this kind of social emotional trauma informed um, interaction strategies. Uh, you'd have to be redacted. You can't give confidential information, but you could say three kids in the class lost their mothers. Please don't bring up mother's day. Mm -hmm. The tallest kid in the class is very self-conscious. Don't make a comment or a joke. Right. And you just help them out. Um, so kids feel a little more comfortable with this unfamiliar adult. And uh, in general, um, it, it bothers me that we don't quantify this because when you look at where a kid can learn, why can he learn in English class and why can't he learn in math class? It's these sort of intangible, unwritten um, accommodations that we're using. So I think of them as accommodation. I write them out, hold people accountable and try to be specific. I know. And it's, it's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking about my oldest daughter. She's in sixth grade and she comes home and tells me, you know, we were so bad for this one teacher today or a substitute but we would never dream of misbehaving for this one teacher. Right. And, and I'm like, why, why would you not, why would you misbehave all of you? And I feel like it's that connection. Like you said, it's the relationship is not there with the teacher. It's missing. Yeah. And I think, I think it can be even part of like how principals evaluate teachers. I mean, that needs to be really specifically taught 
and in place for kids to learn and behave well. Mm -hmm. um, like you said, if they don't have a connection with the teacher and don't feel cared for or safe, kids can't learn and also they often don't behave well. Um, so it's it's very interesting because I bet in your career, no one handed you a piece of paper and said, this is how to interact best with this kid. And that would be very <laughs> useful, even though like you and I have the instincts, you know, in that area, but uh, still it's super useful. Um, public praise is something I forget all the time. I It's my personality to sort of spaz out when a kid does something right. And I always have to go, oops, you know, that wasn't the right thing to do because their reaction was not great. Um, so I, I think it takes the the instinct out of it and the guesswork and really, you know, call a duck a duck. This These have to be in place for kids to learn and behave well. Definitely. And, and knowing little things about each of the students and tying them in, like I just remember my sixth grade teacher um, had a nickname for all of us. And I never forgot that teacher. And then I thought about how was I with my students? And I could tell you now, like over 20 years later, there was a one kid that loved movies and another kid really was into music. And I could have used that, but I just, I don't know why I didn't make the connection. I was too busy trying to get them to do, do the work on their paper and, and not thinking of making that connection, which it, I could have got me a lot farther with that connection for sure. Yeah. And virtually it's a little harder um, to feel connected to students. And so I recommend an interest survey that they fill out, um, sort of expedites the get to know you. Um, I recommend teachers, if you can try to say each student's name two times before you log off uh, an online class, um, even kids with that negative distortion, uh, if they hear their name twice, it's likely they will feel seen or heard or important. Um, it can feel very, you know, disconnected when they're muted, and, you know, it feels a little unnatural. So that can be helpful. Um, things like voice commenting on Google Docs. There's an extension called Mote, M-O-T-E, on Google, where you can leave voice comments instead of written comments. So a kid sitting at home alone can just, you know, click on it and hear, I love the beginning of this. That was really fun. And just have this oh, moment with you, like that would we would do in the classroom. I also love teachers to create a, um, a little file in their uh, online classrooms just for what are you up to non-because what you're at the risk for in virtual teaching is you're only sort of interacting around academics um, but if you put a folder and you get an interest survey and you find out the kid loves to build lego buildings a little kid or an older kid draws cartoons you know after reading the interest survey you could email them and say could you take a picture and put it in the file privately or publicly um, and then you can sort of get that more three-dimensional um, you know awareness of the kid and comment on things other than academics and share a story like oh I love that cartoon too and um, th those are things we would do in the classroom if a kid walked in and had graffiti drawn on the back of their notebook we would say did you draw that you're an amazing artist and in two seconds we learned about the kid we validated them as a not just a student and so that can be replicated too but um, <clears throat> you know it, it, it does feel harder virtually yeah, all my teacher friends tell me about it. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, let's just travel back in time over 20 years ago. You open up my classroom door and you peek in, you see the buzzer on the wall and you walk mm -hmm. in. What would you have said to me as a first year teacher with all the knowledge and skills you'd see all my students? I could name most of them, you know, they still think about them all. 
you walk in, you walk up to me and, and I would say, oh, Jessica, it's so great to see you. Um, I'm really thinking of quitting, you know, breaking my contract, leaving teaching and leaving the country. I'm thinking of moving to the US from Toronto. I'm just so burnt out. What would you have said to me at that time? Well, I would first validate how hard teaching is. I think people don't, who have never taught, do not get it. It is really one of the hardest, you know, and we and we do not have the right training to deal with all the things that a teacher is really being asked to do. And so, first of all, I would validate the feeling, but what I would encourage teachers who are feeling like that to, is that it's not as overwhelming as you think. Um, like I said, there are five big, you know, uh, or six, excuse me, uh, big antecedents that occur. There's five underdeveloped skills. And when, so when you kind of think about that, it's, it's like one of these five, one of these six, but you know, it can be others too, of course, it's not a finite list, but that, that kind of idea helps, I think, great deal. I think the other thing, um, you know, I would say is, um, you know, ask for more professional development. Professional development is the first thing that's cut. Um, and the way kids are now, right? The middle school kids are the first group of children who grew up with technology as it is with, with tablets and, and uh, you know, smartphones and stuff like that. And there's a couple of ramifications of that. And um, yet the professional development is not keeping up with things. Like for example, a lot of teachers say, and, and, and again, there's just commonplace teacher practices that might be unhelpful and you sort of start uncovering those like for example to help kids transition teachers often say five more minutes like count five more minutes and we're going to clean up now the problem with that is it you're i think you're a lot of us think we're communicating more than we are so a kid with very strong executive functioning skills will hear that and then make a plan for the allotted amount of time other kids like they'll increase their pace or not just start the new chapter they know they don't have enough time to stop it. A lot of kids, um, you know, like at home, when you say, honey, we're leaving the house in five minutes, they're like, great, I'll start a movie. Like they make this terrible five minute plan and then you're gonna lead to a whole other problem. So what I recommend is not assume. Actually, I love when you say five more minutes to a kid, then ask them, what's your five minute plan? And you get the most fascinating answers because when you're on technology a lot, it does impact your internal sense of time. And so kids, um, because of technologies that are not as developed in certain skills, like for example, social skills. I don't know, remember when we could go to restaurants, like have you ever seen a family of four all staring at their phones, not inter interacting at all in a restaurant, right? Teenagers text each other, they don't talk. Um, so a kid who's grown up with that adult um, technology behavior is a big contributing factor where they're not interacting with kids because they're on their phones. And so, you know, high school teachers always tell me it feels like I teach middle school. Middle school teachers say, I feel like I could teach elementary school. And that's where a lot of burnout comes. It's like, I didn't have to do this 10, 15 years ago. And if you're comparing a kid now to a kid 10, 15 years ago, that's true. They're less socially practiced. The skill of waiting, for example. Like we, when I grew up, we were in long lines with my mom and we had long car rides where we were bored and we just had to figure out how to be bored and wait. Now, you know, kid, there's self-checkout, there's delivery, you know, you can order a coffee, go in and it's sitting right there for you. There, kids don't, if they're in a long car ride, they're watching movies. 
So kids just haven't developed. And, and so the time concept is also one of those. When you're on your phone, you lose track of time. You don't feel the time passing. So kids haven't sort of developed that schema of what is five minutes. So, you know, saying five more minutes, but adding action steps, five more minutes, which means you can go down the slide two more times, five more minutes, which means you can, um, you know, do two more math problems. Parents helping kids stop technology is a big issue. Like they'll say, you know, tech, you can have screen time till five o'clock or you can have screen time for one hour. That's a problem because at five o'clock they're halfway up the mountain. And so they'll be non-compliant with that direction. 10 minutes prior or five minutes prior to the, you know, time they should stop. They should think, I don't have enough time to climb that mountain make a better decision. And that's what they don't do. So if you did that five minute check, five minutes, what's your five minute plan? And the kid says, fit, climb a mountain. You have a moment to say, that's probably not a reasonable five minute plan. Why don't you go over there and blah, 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 get some coins? Or if your direction is you have 10 more minutes, you can only probably kill two more of those green guys or build one more hamburger or whatever they're doing on the computer and kind of translate it. Those, those transitions will go so much more smoothly. So you know, that's an example of like a common teacher practice that's probably going to be unhelpful, um, yet everyone does it. So in student teaching, the person who taught you did it too. <laughs> and so it's, um, but it's not as overwhelming as you think. Like we do have different kinds of kids now. Um, that's why a lot of people are getting exhausted. And, um, and uh, but there are really easy practical strategies that can um, meet kids where they're at right now. Oh, Jessica, this is so helpful. I wish I knew you back in the day. <laughs> I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today to share the, your research, these strategies, and it's all in an area I'm so deeply invested in. And I know those who tune into the podcast will find this very helpful. If people want to learn more about your books, your articles, your radio and podcast, they can go to your website, jessicaminahan.com. I'll put all that in the show notes and to follow you on social media, they can find you on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. Is there anything else, any other, um, anything else you want to share? Any final thoughts for people on the behavior code to give us some hope? Well, I want uh, everyone to know that it's much more doable than it feels. When you have a little more information, your instincts are going to be more spot on, you know, your reactions to things will be more spot on. So, um, you know, and it's just, I think, you know, getting more information, learning more, um, and, and make sure that you're learning from people who, who translate it into practical classroom strategies. Um, that it, it really is very doable. And it's a few little switches, like saying, instead of a movement break, doing a distraction break is no much, not much more time for you. Or saying five more minutes, which means is not much more time for you, but these things will be much more effective because they're neurobiologically informed, anxiety informed. So it's not learning a whole new thing. It's just shifting a little bit what we're doing to um, take into account, uh, you know, what's best for our kids. Love it. Thanks so much, Jessica. I'm going to try out some of your strategies right away. <laughs> Thank you. you so much for having me. I Thanks really so appreciate much. it. It's been Thank wonderful. I look forward to learning more from you. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 